2022 was a devastating year for our planet. From floods in Pakistan that affected over 33 million people, to unprecedented droughts in East Africa, which likewise impacted tens of millions, the violent forces of climate change were on full display. It's little wonder why, in March 2023, through their sixth assessment report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, noted with urgency that climate change has caused substantial damages and increasingly irreversible losses, and going further to note that the extent and magnitude of climate change impacts are larger than estimated in previous assessments. Even with notable progress being made in tackling climate change and with various adaptive measures being legislated to help vulnerable communities, the world still finds itself in the position of not doing enough. The impacts of climate change are here. They are undeniable and upending. Over our six episodes of Climate Change, America and the World, the LSE Fail and U.S. Center will bring together expert analysis on the far-ranging impacts of climate change, from its effects on the forced movement of people to the politicization of climate change in American politics. Our approach is to be diverse in our consideration of how climate change is felt by different people in different places. Although we are bringing to the fore America's own responsibility and response to one of the greatest challenges of our time, the series is not only about America. It's about America and the world. In the first episode of our series, we introduced the concept of loss and damage. This idea, which has grown in relevance within the climate change discourse, speaks to the fact that there are certain effects of climate change that can neither be mitigated against nor reversed. The recognition of this phenomenon comes to impact policy decisions we can take, and our conceptualization of climate change when it comes to recognizing the communities that are most impacted. In this episode, we dive deep into loss and damage when discussing the economic and social costs of climate change in the United States. In particular, we take a look at the devastating effects of flooding and how the flood insurance industry can be used to gauge how the market interacts with climate change. We are joined by two guests to help us unpack the costs of climate change. Dr. Rebecca Elliott is an economic and environmental sociologist and associate professor in the Department of Sociology at the LSE. Dr. Elliott is a research associate at the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and a faculty affiliate of the LSE Phelan U.S. Center. Dr. Swenya Serminski is a professor in practice at the Grantham Research Institute at the LSE, and since last year has had a role as managing director of climate sustainability at Marsh McLennan. Both Dr. Elliott and Dr. Serminski have years of expertise in analyzing the social and economic costs of environmental destruction. By bringing their expertise together, this episode will provide a robust overview of what is lost due to climate change. Before we can examine the role that the market plays in our understanding of climate change through flood insurance policies, we will begin this episode by defining the losses that arise from climate change. As was mentioned earlier, the idea of loss and damage has become an increasingly important concept within climate discourse. This was particularly seen in the last UN Conference of the Parties, COP27, in 2022. What is loss and damage, and what role does it play in furthering climate justice? So loss and damage, I mean, in its simplest form, it really looks at, you know, the harm um, that comes from, from the impacts and the risks of climate change. So, you know, in its simplest form, all the, you know, all the 
bad stuff that is happening, you know, in terms of flood risk, in terms of heat waves, in terms of, of storms. In the context of the international climate change sort of diplomacy, loss and damage has become um, a policy area. And since roughly 2010 or so, it has entered the global climate diplomacy. And it's really become a sort of third pillar. The first pillar being, you know, the efforts to reduce climate change. So what we do in terms of mitigation. The second area is adaptation to climate change. You know, how can we be better prepared, how we can reduce these negative impacts. But then the third pillar, which is the capital loss and damage, that's really sort of um, there in recognition that, you know, even if we really try hard to adapt, you know, there are unavoidable impacts of climate change and, you know, there are limits to adaptation. So if you take the case of, of low-lying island states, that might, um, with sea level rise at some point, become, you know, uninhabitable. So what that means in terms of a policy area is trying to find solutions that that come up with, you know, sort of support for particular vulnerable countries, often developing countries, that have already experienced these, these adverse effects of climate change. If loss and damage are particularly important for countries in the global south to articulate their concerns to countries in the global north, how does it feature domestically in the United States? Could less well-off communities in the U.S. also be part of the conversation on loss and damage? The impact that climate change has is usually most significant where already, you know, certain vulnerabilities exist. So if, if you take, you know, poorer communities, you know, they are likely to be more severely impacted because they also don't have a capacity to adapt and they they don't have the means to protect themselves. So I think there, yes, you know, within countries, we, we see this happening where poorer communities are also disproportionately impacted by climate change. And you see this in the wake of hurricanes, of flood events. Um, it is usually, you know, the, the impact, particularly on, on communities, is most severe where already these communities are, are struggling, where these communities, you know, don't have the means to actually be better prepared. And, and also often they, it takes them very long to, to recover. As Dr. Svenja Sreminski has noted, climate change comes to disproportionately affect those with fewer resources. This is true from the individual level in cities in the United States to the international level when we compare different countries. This is why the idea of loss and damage has gained resonance within international climate negotiations, for it provides a language to help voice the permanent effects of climate change. The idea of loss helps to denote a sense of urgency. In her 2021 book, Underwater, Loss, Flood Insurance, and the Moral Economy of Climate Change in the United States, Dr. Rebecca Elliott also considers the question of loss. For Dr. Elliott, however, an important caveat exists that recognizes that loss is more than just economic. Although economic losses can be easily quantifiable, the loss without a number underlines the damaging effects of climate change in unique ways. In my research, you know, I try to kind of wrap my mind around that, the, the kind of huge nature of the problem with a focus on loss, because I think what we're actually facing, in fact, 
are realized and expected massive losses. And those losses that we're, we're thinking about are economic losses. And I think that's the thing that that's easy to grab onto anytime there's a natural disaster, you know, because those things get counted up in dollars and cents. Uh, but there are also losses, of, of course, of species. So we've had biodiversity loss related to climate change of, uh, you know, habitats that that are significant and profound, but aren't necessarily the ones that are easily kind of monetized. What happens when those losses occur is that all of these questions get thrown up in new and really difficult ways about what kind of compensation, if any, is possible or appropriate, who deserves that compensation? Um, are there are there limits to compensation, both in terms of the actual availability of resources, but also in terms of what money can actually do to make a person or a community or a government or a planet whole again? Um, are these losses permanent or are there things that can be recovered or rebuilt or repaired? Um, and so this question of loss, I think, captures a lot of the sort of transformation that we're seeing. Thinking, thinking seriously about climate loss can also think, uh, lead us to think seriously about what might replace what is lost and how we might build futures that we feel are more humane, you know, whether or not the climate is changing um, in dangerous ways. Dr. Rebecca Elliott explains how it's easy to think about economic losses and how this bias in our conceptualization may blind us to the truly damaging impact that climate change can engender. From losses of biodiversity to losses of social mobility, when we really begin to think critically about all that climate change can and does take from communities, the idea of repair and compensation becomes daunting. But, as Dr. Elliott argues, the devastation of loss does present an opportunity to think about how we can begin to replace what is no longer there in ways that are more beneficial to the environment. Until we can get to that point, however, debates on compensation don't need to be sites of just contestation. Indeed, in the international arena, where the debate on loss and damage has been ongoing in recent years, compensation can act as a means to think more urgently about solving the climate crisis. Yeah, I mean, I think one aspect, particular in the context of the global climate diplomacy, is this question of who's responsible for climate change and who's been impacted by it. If you look at historic emissions, you know, they're the coming from, from the industrialized north and the impacts on the south. And that has created this, um, you know, the, this imbalance. And there's a question around climate justice which is then linked to the loss and damage discussion. So um, I think, you know, it's really important if we want to, to find global solutions to, to recognize that and to, to see that there is, you know, a need for the global community to, to address that, that imbalance. Understandably, it's very, very difficult. And, you know, the, the negotiations have been going on for years and there has been a a little bit of progress. There has been announcement around sort of specific funding for loss and damage. So I think, um, you know, this is this is evolving, but it is a difficult um, um, topic to find find solutions for. It is easy to see that an imbalance in carbon emissions and dealing with the brunt of climate change exists. And in episode one, we look closely at this discrepancy. Given the difficulties that surround climate negotiations, 
How effective can these forums be, these international forums be, in tackling the issues of loss and damage? How do we prevent international conversations from devolving into talking points devoid of plans that take on board the importance of irreversible loss and damage? Well, I mean, if you follow climate diplomacy, you know, nothing is straightforward. And it, in a way, it also explains why, you know, we are now, well, we are coming up to COP28, which is fair to say we still haven't solved the problem. Global diplomacy, you know, is is hard and is complex and, we, you know, the, it can be frustrating. But I think they they also play a hugely important role in, in trying to, to galvanize basically the global community and bringing together all the countries, you know, in, in, in one, one place. And that should not be underestimated. I mean, this ability for people from really, you know, different types of countries, I mean, low-lying island states and big Western economies, you know, sort of start discussing, start negotiating, start finding solutions together. I mean, that, that is really important. It's definitely not easy. It um, has sort of gone through various phases. We had the Warsaw International Mechanism. Um, we now have these um, early financial commitments, but they, this triggered a question of how do we actually define finance for loss and damage? And there are sort of expert agreements being set up to discuss that, to define it. So, you know, this is not going to be a quick, a quick fix, but I think it's important that there is a place where these topics can be discussed and where also different countries feel, feel represented and different voices can, can come together. Although questions of international accountability and mechanisms for addressing the ideas of loss and damage remain complicated, within the U.S. and indeed in other countries, measures that recognize the long-term effects of climate change have been in place for many decades through insurance policies. As we know, insurance is meant to be in place to protect against a certain level of risk of accident. This is why people pay for car insurance or health insurance or travel insurance so that in case someone incurs a large financial loss, an insurance provider would be able to step in and help. Flooding as a result of climate change places certain communities and coastal regions at greater risk than others. This risk is reflected in flood insurance premiums which either rise or decline based on the market's perception of a potential flood. In the United States, a federal program known as the U.S. National Flood Insurance Program, or the NFIP, provides nearly $1.3 trillion in coverage against flooding. How does this federal program relate to how climate change is conceptualized in American politics? Yeah, so the National Flood Insurance Program is actually a very old program. And today, because it's it deals with flooding and because we know that flooding and flood risk is connected to climate change, it features in a lot of conversations about climate change and climate change policy in the U.S., but in fact, it was established in the late 1960s, long before climate change was sort of on the, the policy radar for American policymakers. And at the time it was established, it was meant to do a lot. It, it, it is an extremely ambitious program. So on the one hand, it was, it, it was meant to make it possible for people to buy and insure homes you know, in a country that was rapidly suburbanizing, 
making sure that people could ensure that asset was a really important way to shore up uh, their home ownership. There wasn't flood insurance available from the private market at that time because private insurers, after a massive flood uh, of the Mississippi River in 1927, basically said, this is not viable for us commercially. And so that's when the federal government stepped in to provide a public, federally run program of flood insurance. So a big part of it was part of this, this idea about homeownership as, as kind of central to the American dream. But then part of the program was also meant to sort of subtly reduce the exposure to flood loss over time. And the way it was supposed to do that was by assigning a price to the risk. If a potential builder or a potential buyer is looking at a house and they're, they find that the insurance rates are really high, that's meant to signal to them that this is a risky place to live or to build. So the idea is that if you, if you price the risk, then you kind of send this little nudge to every single actor who's going to make this economic decision about homeownership. And sort of over time, the aggregate effect would be to kind of push people away from the riskiest uses of the floodplain incentivize kind of risk mitigation and sort of prudent land use in ways that would lower the total overall exposure of, of the flood insurance program and of people in the country to, to flood loss. Flood insurance, on paper anyways, can illustrate a way in which the market can push for climate adaptation. As Dr. Rebecca Elliott noted, you don't need to believe in climate change to be implicated within a market that seems to respond to climactic activity like floods. The nudges and signals that insurance rates provide are meant to incentivize buying practices and land use that attempt to decrease flood risk. Although this seems like a sound idea in theory, how is it actually played out in practice? So this was a really kind of elegant design on paper. Geographers and economists were consulted and putting it together. Uh, it seemed to make a lot of sense in theory. Um, in practice, it has really struggled to achieve that second aim. It's done a really good job of making sure that people can access affordable insurance. It's not done as great a job at reducing exposure to flood risk. And in fact, what we've seen is that populations in floodplains have grown, building has continued in floodplains. And so today we have a lot of people, a lot of property at risk. There's a lot of controversy now over how to make flood insurance generally, and the NFIP in particular, perform that original goal that was set about helping the country to reduce its exposure to flood risk. And people have a lot of really different ideas about whether it can do that at all, whether it should do that at all, whether pricing risk is actually a meaningful way to kind of produce climate change adaptation through this kind of market signal. Um, and so it's become this kind of very kind of lively political target um, and one that has forged really complicated political alliances between progressives and conservatives, between environmentalists and um, kind of taxpayer groups. I mean, all kinds of, of really interesting coalitions. In 2022, Dr. Svenja Serminski co-authored a paper in the scientific journal Environmental Research Letters titled from Managing Risk to Increasing Resilience, a review on the development of urban flood resilience, its assessment, and the implications for decision-making. This paper noted that flooding, quote, is the most damaging and widespread natural hazard globally that has accounted for over $651 billion in economic losses and 1.65 billion people affected between 2000 and 2019, end quote. 
What makes flooding in particular such a devastating phenomenon? The, the first thing to, to remind, remind us all, you, you don't have to get your feet back wet to be impacted by flooding. And, you know, I think this is a really important message because we often think about these things as, you know, very localized. Yes, there are obviously very significant local impacts, but flood risk and other climate risk can sort of cascade through the system. And, you know, supply chains are one example also in terms of infrastructure or the financial system, in fact. And when you look at flood risk or other climate risk, you know, they're they having an impact on different systems and that's that makes them so so severe. And, you know, that increases their 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 impact on on how we work, how we live and how we manage our our business processes. So that's the first thing. It should be really seen as sort of a cross-cutting um, issue. One of the things that I think is interesting about flood insurance as it relates to the way that the climate change problem is managed is that it basically takes these changes that are happening to the world around us and it turns them into an economic proposition. It turns them into a matter of dollars and cents. So you don't actually have to believe in climate change, but if you live in a flood zone and your flood insurance premium is based on the risk that you face and that risk is changing, then you are actually dealing with the impacts of climate change every time you pay that insurance bill. Although the point of the NFIP was to reduce the exposure to flood loss over time, what has actually ended up happening is that those who can afford higher insurance premiums are able to continue to live in flood-prone areas, albeit slightly more inconvenienced by the higher prices. Whereas those that cannot afford it, well, they may be forced to leave. When we think of this phenomenon more globally, Dr. Serminski's point on the cascading effects of floods becomes more apparent as entire economic systems become submerged to deal with the consequences of flooding. Dr. Elliott has spent years analyzing the role that flood insurance premiums have played in determining who gets to live in what parts of the United States. This has produced a phenomenon known as climate gentrification, which speaks to how communities are being upended as climate change comes to intersect with class-based realities. The topographical geography of where one lives is becoming a more critical determinant in the monetary value of that community. I think increasingly economists and people that sort of study how real estate markets look at the aggregate are starting to find evidence that for instance, areas at higher elevation are showing stronger price appreciation or property value appreciation because they don't face the same level of flood risk. Um, there's, there's research that indicates that flood insurance could be part of what researchers are starting to identify as climate gentrification. So people moving to kind of safer parts of metropolitan areas and in the process displacing historic populations that have long lived there, in part because they couldn't afford to live near the water. Um, you know, they were priced out of those, those places previously. One way to think about this, which is that, yes, of course this is happening. And that's exactly what flood insurance is meant to do. It's meant to push people away from the water's edge. But of course, when you put that proposition to a person who's been living in a house, in a neighborhood for their entire life, perhaps even, you know, have inherited a property from a parent, you know, who have kind of long-standing emotional and social connections to a place and say, sorry, you have to move on. 
that's deeply troubling and traumatic that people have a really, really hard time with. And they resist, you know, they try to find ways to avoid moving on if they can in, in some in some cases. The type of social dislocation that Dr. Elliot referred to underlines the non-economic ties that people have to where they live. I mean, if you think about where you live, you don't simply value that place just because of the monetary value it holds. It's because of the memories and because of the sentiments that you attach to these places, the community that you are a part of. And we will expand upon this point a bit later. But before then, it would be worthwhile to take a closer look at what happens when new flooding maps are released and insurance premiums go up. The price of insurance, the price of flood insurance has historically meant to reflect the flood risk. So, of course, people who can't afford to pay a higher flood insurance premium, they're the ones who feel the strongest pressure to move on. And, of course, there are people who will always be able to pay flood insurance no matter how expensive it gets, really. But working class communities, especially on the kind of like riverbanks of the U.S., um, on former working ports, those types of areas, these are communities that are feeling some of the kind of strong pressures, financial pressures to move on. And so there's this question about the sort of equity of that distribution. The kind of logic that, you know, sending this price signal helps people to be safer also misses part of the story economically for people because that's that's all well and good if you can actually sell your house and move someplace else. But what you're finding, what what stories are actually starting to get picked up in the press about, about families that are kind of stuck in place because the risk map has changed or the insurance has gone up and that basically stigmatizes their house. So there's this kind of looming threat to property markets, to real estate markets, to the whole model of how people that that all kind of turns on this question of, you know, how do how do those markets interpret a flood risk update uh, or a map update or a price increase? The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or more commonly known as FEMA, is an agency of the Department of Homeland Security. FEMA is tasked with preventing devastating losses that occur from climactic events and for helping to organize and disperse the resources needed to combat disaster when such a moment arises. In the United States, FEMA is tasked with the role of mapping flood risks. Often after disasters like Hurricane Sandy in 2012 in New York, flood maps are updated to reflect new risks that may be posed to property in a given area. The updating of these maps can have great consequences as insurance premiums react to the signaling of risk. As insurance premiums rise, those less well-off may be forced to leave their homes even before a flood occurs. This one example of the market responding to greater climate risks, in this case risks posed by flooding, leads to dislocation and the upending of communities in ways that disproportionately affect the working class. A huge plank within the model of how people transmit wealth in America is through property ownership. As the property market continues to be shaped and molded by flood risk maps and actual flooding, we begin to see just how climate change can have an impact on future generations from a purely economic and social standpoint, without even considering the environmental losses that will also occur. An effective way of understanding the scale of this problem is by considering the importance of what is called a moral economy. These are questions about what is fair, what is valuable, questions about equity, about justice, um, questions about who has the right to make a decision about 
what should happen in the present to anticipate or, or to plan for a future um, that looks scarier and wetter. Um, so in short, you know, these, these are moral questions. And the concept of moral economy does two things for me in the book. And in the first place, it points our attention to the ways that economic arrangements are always tied up and entangled with these kind of moral ideas, these backdrops of normative commitments that people have that they don't necessarily always articulate, but are always operating with some notion of what it is appropriate or inappropriate for individuals to do or states to do or market actors to do. That, that applies even to things that are often held up as kind of objective or rational, um, because those are also values of a kind. And so, so moral economy allows me to kind of excavate all of that that's often left implicit, but at these moments of conflict and contestation over the design of the program, over how a flood risk should be mapped or how a price should be set, come to the surface and often are made explicit. You know, people are actually having fights in these terms about these things. So far, we have been talking mostly about the United States, where quite a few people have access to flood insurance. And so, however imperfect the system, there is at least, in theory, a safety net in place to mitigate against the risks of floods, both before they occur and afterwards. But what about places where such insurance is not even an option? What do these protection gaps tell us about the unequal effects of climate change globally? I think then when it comes to, you know, which communities are being impacted, I mean, you just basically have to watch the news. And, you know, unfortunately, we've had a series of really dramatic flood events. All of these, you know, have very different dynamics and they have also different, you know, contexts. You know, the term flooding, it's a broad area and basically means flooding uh, or water in the, in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, you know, I think. The key message, and um, at Marsh McLennan, we, we're just about to publish a big report on that, is we need to, to understand that you know, previous approaches to how we manage or assess flood risk have been really inadequate because they don't recognize that it's such a cross-cutting, such a systemic issue. You know, the, the third part is you know, insurance. In, in some countries, we have flood insurance. Um, but there are concerns that if we don't manage the risk, you know, we'll become unaffordable or unavailable. You know, that sort of shows that we actually really need to to rethink our approach and our solutions and, and try to combine and, and no longer just rely on on a flood wall or one flood insurance policy. You know, we we basically need to throw a lot of tools at, at this problem um, if we want to basically stay above water. Without considering what a moral economy entails, we may end up with a false sense of security in combating flood risks. This is especially true for people who don't have access to flood insurance because they're denied the ability to acquire the protective measures that are available to some. This increases one's sense of insecurity from both an economic and environmental perspective. As Dr. Elliot noted earlier, the moral economy of climate change underlines how economic ideals and practices are not divorced from the wider context of what we value. This is a liberating idea because our policies are a choice and are reflective of what we value no matter how much we may claim one course of action is more rational than another. How is the concept of a moral economy explained by flood insurance? 
And what is the relationship between individuals affected by flooding or climate change to the wider collective? A moral economy is a way of, of saying, you know, what are the kinds of sentiments that circulate around a problem? And the kind of moral economy of climate change, I think, is something that is established in the U.S. in large part through flood insurance, because it basically says, you know, here's this kind of collectively produced problem. And one of the ways that we think it is appropriate to manage a collectively produced problem is to kind of slice it up into individual quantities of risk. It elevates that kind of individualized response and responsibility um, in ways that perhaps miss or diminish the truly collective nature of climate change and even just of flood risk specifically, because flood risk, you know, though a single individual might face a particular kind of quantity of flood risk, the fact that they do is the result of collective decisions. It's the result of zoning decisions that probably long predate their decision to buy a house and that transcend their power to do anything about in most cases. And so this whole kind of moral economy of climate change in the U.S. I think corresponds with a more general American moral economy, which is that um, individuals in, in many respects are expected to take ownership of, to exert power over their kind of fate and fortune um, in ways that don't necessarily see the kind of structural or collective elements to those situations. The collective nature of climate change cannot be accurately reflected by the individualistic basis on which flood insurance operates. As both Dr. Elliot and Dr. Szyminski noted, when we look at flooding, the effects should not be reduced to just the individual that is facing the flood risk, as these risks are collectively produced and the repercussions of their experience with flooding implicates a much larger number of people. From both cause and consequence, flooding, like other climate-related phenomena, is best understood and dealt with from a collective standpoint. In our last episode, we talked about how people live where they do because of long-standing policies, which in the context of the fourth episode, were centered around racial discrimination. This point of historical legacy is also relevant when we consider the costs of climate change in America, as particular zoning policies long determined one's geography and now one's susceptibility to flooding. The role of policies lay bare the perhaps mystifying role that the individual can play in dealing with climate change, and it may also explain why individuals make the decisions they do that appear irrational from a purely economic perspective. I mean, why would someone choose to stay in places deemed to be at risk? I mean, I think one of the strengths of sociology is that it allows us to see the very kind of complicated mix of things that people are weighing when they're faced with something like a flood. It instantly stops being so mystifying that people continue to live at risk, even for people you know who think of themselves or generally kind of in their decision making are kind of economically rational actors, right? There are all kinds of competing considerations. There are other kinds of risks that people are thinking about and other kinds of things that they value that they're trying to protect. I think one of the limitations of the kind of discourse around flood insurance, but also around climate change adaptation more generally, is that indeed a lot of the kind of economic factors get a lot of the attention in ways that I think miss 
the, a lot of the criteria that people use to make decisions, in fact, about risk and hazard and disaster. People, I think, are very concerned about the economic consequences of climate change, especially when you're thinking about homeownership. And this is the most important asset that most Americans will ever own. And climate change kind of spells the end of that model of social provision. That's a profoundly terrifying question. And so the kind of political economy, I think, is, is a really important thing to contend with. But the kinds of losses and, and traumas, really, that people are experiencing do come from the kinds of emotional losses, the social losses, the things that that feel kind of untethered and unmoored when people see a community around them destroyed by a natural disaster or have to face the kind of economic decline of a place that they care about because it is now understood to be kind of too risky to continue to exist in the way that it, it always did. Grappling with the different measurements of risks that individuals and governments take is especially important when it comes to flooding, given the alarming challenge that it poses. The challenge with climate change and you know flooding is, is one example here is that it really affects different parts of our system. So infrastructure system, financial system, you know, the food system, um, our built environment, our communities. And that makes it so, you know, so pervasive and so powerful. 23% of the world's power generation capacity is threatened by flooding. But with a changing climate, a two degree world's warming, that would mean that that share rises to 41%. So 41% of the world's power generation would be at, at risk of flooding. And, you know, that raises a lot of questions. You know, what do we need to do? Can we move, you know, this this power generation away from, you know, from flood risk areas? And it just highlights that, you know, there are no easy answers to this. But these are really sort of, yeah, cascading issues because if we don't solve it, I mean, you know, we're already struggling with with the resilience of our energy system and, you know, adding you know, flat risk on top of that. I think it's one of the risks that we can actually manage. We just need to take action now. So um, it just illustrates the the scale and, um, you know, why we need to act now to actually manage um, current and future risks. In the final chapter of Dr. Elliott's book, Loss, Flood Insurance, and the Moral Economy of Climate Change in the United States, she notes that, quote, Attributing loss to climate change can implicate fossil fuel companies that have obfuscated the issue, national governments that have shown insufficient ambition in mitigation, and the relatively affluent writ large whose carbon-intensive consumption practices disproportionately contribute to emissions, end quote. Before we even reach the losses that an individual incurs and the risks that an individual has to measure, decisions taken by a whole series of actors from governments to companies have to be considered. By dealing with loss and damage or risk and crisis management from an individual perspective, we can obfuscate the role of those larger actors. Why may this particularly be an issue in the American cultural context? I mean, I think part of it is a very kind of long history of sort of American political culture. Um, you know, this this kind of belief in not just kind of individual responsibility, but individual sort of ingenuity. And, but then I think also a big part of it is that those larger interests, um, you know, particularly if we're thinking about fossil fuel companies are very good at using the political process 
to avoid taking responsibility, to, to work to shift the narrative so that, you know, it's not just about the individual and taking ownership of the, the risks that they face, but we've seen this, you know, and in, in the drive to kind of make climate change a problem of sort of individual consumption, you know, when 70% of emissions are caused by something like a hundred companies, you know, it's like, where, where should our attention really be focused? So I think that's a, a big part of it. It's just that we're talking about immensely powerful interests for whom, you know, an individualized kind of attribution of the problem and also attribution of, of responsibility works very well, um, you know, to, to allow them to continue with business as usual. The need to think beyond the individual is made even more apparent when we consider the non-American context where flood insurance can be a rarity. When you don't have insurance, it usually at the end of the day falls back onto the public purse. So you will then often have, you know, these these public support schemes. And that is putting a lot of, you know, strain on on governments. And we see this also in other contexts. I mean, the um, basically, after every disaster, you know, this this focus, what you actually need is is a quick response, quick disbursement of money. And I mean, that that's one of the advantages with insurance. It is actually, you know, it can be very quick and effectively being paid out and support people in, in their hour of need and help with the recovery quickly. While with some of these, these public funds, you can wait a long, long time. And um, yeah, I think that that creates... It's also a degree of uncertainty about what you will actually get and how, how quickly you can recover. Although many societies may be primed to have an individualized attribution of the problem, we need to think in a more transformative manner. The economic and social systems that undergird certain individualistic approaches to managing crises is itself in danger due to climate change. Returning to our earlier conversation on insurance policies... Can insurance, which is in sync with climate adaptation strategies, help to mitigate the effects of climate change? Yeah, I mean, insurance um, can play a significant role in, in preparing communities and businesses, you know, for a wetter future, if we're talking about flooding, or for a drier future, because that, that you know, often... You know, some places can be too wet one, you know, one part of the year and too dry in the other part. So insurance can play a role in, in strengthening our resilience and helping us to, to recover also more quickly. But one aspect that I think is starting to evolve is this question of using insurance actually also to incentivize risk reduction and encourage those who have access to insurance. At the same time, you know, not rely on insurance, but also actively reduce their their um, risk and losses. And I think that is, if if we want to keep insurance available and affordable, that is basically the only way going forward. It really needs to be designed, you know, in in sync with what we call adaptation or risk reduction strategies. And I can give you an example here in the UK. We have a um, flood insurance pool. It's called Floodry, and it was um, created basically in response to concerns that flood insurance um, was becoming unaffordable or unavailable for those who had been impacted by a flood. So this pool was set up, um, and initially there wasn't really 
much the focus on trying to reduce the risk. It was more about, you know, subsidizing flood insurance and providing flood insurance cover. Now, FloodRe, after a couple of years, is starting to include certain mechanisms that will, you know, will influence how, you know, this, this country responds to flooding. So, for example, if there is a flood afterwards, the payouts will be linked to, you know, resilience measures. So we call this like building back better. So, you know, we're just not putting houses in the same, you know, the same way they were before, but we use it as a chance to to make them more resilient. Um, and I think that that's an that's an interesting example where also insurance can can play a role in in reducing risk, and by doing that, you know, increasing not just the financial resilience, but but making communities stronger. As Dr. Serminski notes, there is a potential positive role that insurance can play in incentivizing environmentally friendly behavior. But again, this needs to be cautioned against because it is not obvious that individuals act in ways that the market dictates to be, so to speak, rational. Another crucial point is that insurance policies that lack a relationship with climate adaptation policies will not be sufficient in handling the scope of the problem posed by flooding. I think one of the things that the climate crisis puts into question is this model of social provision in the United States that is so tied up with homeownership as an asset. We already have affordable housing crises in so many parts of the U.S. Millennials and younger are having a really hard time getting on, you know, what's called the property ladder. And that should lead us to question, okay, well, is it actually feasible, in fact, that will produce a kind of climate resilient future by getting homeowners to kind of individually retrofit their houses or make kind of slightly adjusted decisions about where they build or or indeed like put the entire country behind some flood walls? Like, is that actually the way to make people safe and secure in a climate changed world? Or um, do we need to think more transformationally, really, about how to house people in ways that are safe, how to provide not just housing, but kind of work and education that is um, affordable and and dignified um, so that people have the kind of fundaments of economic security, whether or not they ever happen to buy a house. because it's just it's it's not looking necessarily like the proposition that it once was, you know, it's you can work really hard to save for that down payment and to make your monthly mortgage payment. And then if you are not just in a part of the country that floods, but in a part of the country that burns or part of the country that faces other kinds of extreme weather, you know, that asset becomes really expensive to sustain if you're kind of continually having to rebuild or repair it. But then also that question of, you know, what is it going to be worth by the time you are done with it, by the time you want to sell it? Um, I think these are questions that are really uncertain and then becoming less and less certain as, as the climate crisis unfolds. Dr. Rebecca Elliott and Dr. Svenja Serminski helped us survey the scope of loss that climate change can bring about and the various risks that individuals and governments need to guard against. A pertinent takeaway from this episode is that there can be a mismatch between what the market deems to be risky behavior and what individuals believe they can afford to do and not do. 
Regardless of this mismatch, our conceptions of loss needs to expand to include what cannot be quantified when disaster strikes. People's attachments to where they live is just as worthy of being deemed a loss as is the value of the economic destruction that can be noted. The way we approach the issue of loss and damage and of risk assessment is a matter of debate. But what climate change has done is shown the fragility of much of our economic and social provision systems, and indeed of our perceptions to ideas of loss and risk. It's also worth pointing out that much of this episode concerned home ownership, and of course many people don't even own homes and may never own property. They have their own unique challenges to face when it comes to environmental destruction by way of floods or any climate disaster. The reality of this should inspire greater urgency because being a homeowner can be in many cases a relatively privileged position. But of course, this privilege varies depending on how that property was acquired, where it is located, and whether its owners are able to move. How insurance policies are designed globally, but more specifically in the United States through the National Flood Insurance Program, may be an important tool in allowing for more environmentally friendly land development. But the role of insurance loses value when we become oblivious to the lack of mobility that many people have. When you think, for instance, of floods that have displaced tens of millions of people in the global south over the past couple of years, what could insurance have realistically done in that situation? There are too many scenarios of unpredictability with climate change for insurance policies to be seen as a truly effective tool on its own in mitigating the effects of climate change. Whether we are measuring loss or measuring risk, effective climate adaptive policies need to feature a collective diagnosis and response to the challenges. And this collective response and diagnosis has to not just be at the national level in the United States, but more globally as well when we consider countries in different parts of the world. It is doubtful whether this can be done if we limit our perception of the problems posed by climate change to only economic matters. The next episode will be the sixth and final episode of our series. Throughout this work, we have considered a variety of issues born out of climate change that implicate America and the world. Our final episode will look forward by reflecting on the nature of climate change politics in America and globally. This episode was produced by the LSC Failing US Center by Mohit Mullik, Anderson Tan, and Chris Gilson. The music from this episode is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this fifth episode of this climate change series. Please feel free to rate and review on your platform of choice. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'll see you next time. <laughs>